This is Jonathan Mickles with the Strategic Multifamily Investing Podcast. I always have to say that twice. This is Jonathan Mickles with the Strategic Multifamily Investing Podcast, and I have with me today, today Charles Seaman. How are you doing, Charles? Good, Jonathan. Thanks a lot for having me. Absolutely. We met on a, um, since you were doing some underwriting uh, at one of the GOB network uh, events, and um, we just kept talking after that, you know, on some other things. And I just thought, hey, it'd be great to bring you on the podcast. And thanks for uh, accepting the invitation. Yes, thanks for having me once again. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So you, you, I saw in your uh, your uh, subject line, well, not subject line, but the uh, tagline at the end of your email, you have a bunch of certifications and chevrons at the bottom of that. Can you explain what those some of those are? I think one of them was was that you are a certified underwriter, et cetera. What do the, some of those things mean? Yes, absolutely. There's four of them. So one is for underwriting, one is for asset management, one is for, uh, you know, geez, it's been a while since I've looked at them. I actually actually have to go back and see what the others are. But basically, they were certifications that I got through RE Mentor, which is one of the many training programs out there nowadays. And it's it's probably the one that's been around the, the longest. So it's really the grandfather of multifamily education. And in that regard, uh, they had different courses they were able to take for certifications. So I took each of the ones that I was able to, and I passed each of the, the quizzes and then got the, the badges that you see in the signature line. So is, uh, the, you know, the guru or the teacher, the lead teacher, is that Dave Lindahl? That's correct. Yep. So yes, Dave Lindahl is considered um, pretty much the, uh, the grandfather, as it were, of, of uh, multifamily, or at least a lot of people that I know in this space believe so. So then yep. you, why did you want to get into multifamily in the first place? I mean, that's impressive that you were able to get that, but why, why multifamily? So you know what, I, I can't say that I ever had a big vision to get into it, like many people do. For me, it was really more stumbling onto it. Okay. And when I was 20 years old, I was young, dumb, and broke, for lack of a better term. And I needed a job. And the, the guy that I was, uh, that I wound up working for uh, owned several different businesses. He owned a plumbing company, commercial real estate, bars and restaurants. So eventually my role there expanded to include helping him manage and operate all of his different businesses and properties. And I was fortunate to learn a lot and to make a lot of good contacts and eventually start making a little more money. And of the different industries that I was involved with there, I always gravitated most to commercial real estate. Uh, you know, I like construction. It can be lucrative, but it's also high stress. Real estate is stressful, but it's a different type of stress. And I'd rather deal with that stress. So, so, so yeah. distress versus you stress. Distress is correct. the kind of stuff. You stress is the good type of stuff. Yes, so correct. How are, they, how are they different in terms of their stresses? If you could help me out with that. Sure. So construction, I find, is usually a lot of machismo, a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, uh, very in your face. You, you know, it, it oftentimes works out that way. It's very much, for lack of a better term, the old boys club. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it, it is different now than it used to be. There's no question on that. But, it, but there's still a lot of old tendencies that die hard, for lack of a better term. Got it. So, so with real estate, there are different stresses because you are going to have operational problems. Occasionally, like any other business, if you're running something improperly, you could have money problems. But I find that oftentimes the, the stresses in real estate can be minimized through better operations and better planning. And what I would also say is that real estate is probably the most predictable business on the face of the planet, which is one of the things I really like about it. Mm. It makes it much easier to predict your income. It makes it much easier to 
attain stability. And those are things that I really liked about real estate and commercial real estate in particular. So you mentioned that it's uh, real easy to predict income versus say construction, but you know, given where we are right now in, in you know, pandemic uh, times when we're recording this, uh, there's been a lot of you know, talk about potentially a, a crash. And I don't know if you're, you know, I didn't prepare you for this one here, but you know, uh, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, there are a lot of you know, companies that are saying, hey, we're still collecting 80, 90, 95% you know, of our rents but you know, some people are predicting doom and gloom in the market. You know, do you have any thoughts about that? You know, and I definitely have thoughts like anybody else. Uh, if you would have asked me last May, and as, as we're recording this here, it's late April, 2021. But if you would have asked me last May, I would have told you we were headed for a depression mm. and that I saw a lot, of, a lot of discounts coming. Unfortunately, I was wrong in that. And I, I, I wish that I, that I was right from a buying standpoint, but unfortunately not. <laughs> so uh, all that's happened in the last 11 and a half months for anybody that's been following the real estate market is that prices have went up and up and up. And it's been surprising. Uh, even in spite of a global pandemic, we've managed to, to stay pretty strong. Now, the reality is I can make an argument either way at this point. I can make an argument saying that, that I think the market's going to continue on an upward trajectory. And I could also make an argument of why it's going to roll over in the next six to 12 months. So what I've been telling people and what I've been doing myself is that I, I've been telling them it's a great time to buy, but you want to be cautious because it's not a time to go out there and overpay. It's, it's never really a good time to go out and overpay with this. Sometimes you're able to cover it up better than others. Uh, right now, I don't think is one of those times. I think right now between property values being pretty high and just a lot of uncertainty in the market. I do not think it's the time to overpay. It's the time to buy if you're getting the right price for a deal. And if you're getting something that appears to, to be well located. So in real estate, you know, it says they always say location, location, location. Right. So depending on what you're looking for, different locations can fit that. If you're buying in a major metropolitan area like a Charlotte or like a in Atlanta or a Miami. You know, the, those are areas that have stability. Now, the downside is you're, you're probably going to pay a pretty premium for those areas, uh, but they'll probably continue to remain in demand even if you have a downturn. So that's a plus. Right. Now, if you're looking for something that's going to provide better cash flow, you're probably better off in a tertiary market. With the one caveat being that if the market does roll over, you'll probably see demand decrease in those areas before you see it decrease in Charlotte or Atlanta. So, so for all perspective. For, for the newbie that's out here, what's the difference between a primary, secondary, and tertiary market? Is, is Charlotte, Atlanta considered primary market or are they considered secondary markets? So, so technically, if you go in strictly by definition, they would be secondary markets. There really aren't that many primary markets in the US, but the only difference is population and demand. Gotcha. And that really is all it comes down to. So I don't know the exact definition off the top of my head, but I think primary markets are either above 1 million or 2 million people, which in the US, that narrows it down to New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston. Uh, so there's really not that many. It's a very small handful that are true primary markets, but you have a lot of strong secondary markets in Southeastern states that many of us like to invest in, in, in places like Texas. So th those are spots that'll continue to stay strong because even though they're not primary, they're areas that have seen a lot of growth over the last two decades. And they're likely to continue seeing growth because you have a lot of positive migration trends to those areas. 
Gotcha. Okay. Well, you mentioned that um, that Charlotte was was probably one of those secondary markets that's probably strong enough to um, to rebound if there is if a downturn does occur. And uh, I believe you had a uh, situation where you guys closed on something recently that uh, almost didn't quite work out, and it, the, you you had some challenges there. Uh, yes. Can you talk about that. Absolutely. And how you guys overcame those challenges? Yes. Uh, so what I will say, I'll preface this and say that, and it may sound a little bit different than what I what I said a few minutes ago. I generally like stress. I, I don't like overdoing it, but I like at least some stress. It's just how I operate. I do my best work under that. So uh, given that pretense, I will say that the, the story I'm about to tell probably details the most the two most stressful days of my professional life. <laughs> wow. Okay, cool. Uh, so like many contracts in real estate, you have a date that you need to close that transaction by. So with this particular deal that Jonathan's referencing, it was a 64 unit deal in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we were required to close by January 28th. About a week and a half before, we realized that we were going to need a few extra days. Wouldn't be anything substantial, but maybe anywhere from three to five business days. So most times you're able to get the, the other party in the transaction to work with you, especially if it's something that's not really going to be a significant change. Right. So about a week and a half prior to that date, I contacted the broker and I said, you know, listen, Mr. Broker, we're having an issue here. Uh, our financing is going to take a few more days than we expected to be approved. Uh, we're not going to be able to close by January 28th. Why don't you start putting the idea of another extension out there to the seller and see what he wants for it. And this is about a week and a half prior to that required closing date of January 28th. So initially, uh, the seller came back and he said that he wasn't happy about it at all, but that he would do it for an additional $50,000 fee. Wow. Is that and, normal and, that they would uh, tack on extra money for just three to five days, say, versus a month or something like that? So what I would say is, is there really is no normal in commercial real estate because everything is negotiable. Yeah. And it'll vary from seller to seller, but there definitely are sellers that will do that. Yeah. So, and I understand because it is a business, so it's it's within their right to do that. Um, and, and I had discussed it internally with my team. And in retrospect, uh, the smart move that would have saved us a lot of grief and a lot of headache and a lot of money would have been accepting that offer quickly. <laughs> oh, so you guys didn't initially accept the offer. Right. We did not accept it. We just took too much time. Got it. Um, so we waited until about, you know, let's say four or five business days later, we went back to the broker and said, you know what, tell the seller we'd like to move forward and we'll, we'll accept it. By that point, the seller had more time to think about it. Uh, he decided he no longer wanted the extension and that we e either had to close by January 28th as our contract required, or we'd be held in default. So, so keep in mind, being held in default can mean a lot of things. In this case, for sure, what it would have meant is that we would have had a quarter of a million dollars that was non-refundable. Okay. And that's between deposit money. That's between money we spent on due diligence, on loan application fees, uh, all the money that we had tied up in that deal in one way or another that would have been essentially lost. So that's a lot of money. It is. It definitely is. Yes. You know, so it, 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 it makes you think twice and say, boy, I made a mistake here. I should have just said yes when you offer that. 
but, so okay so but what what was it that kept you guys from <clears throat> immediately accepting that and thinking hey i may want to take some time on this and and think about this a little bit longer i mean but what so, so part of the reason is because i wanted to make sure i consulted all of the pertinent partners that would have been involved in the transaction Got it. uh in retrospect one of the lessons that i learned there was while it is good to consult it you know all, all the pertinent parties sometimes you just have to make the decision yourself. And in retrospect, uh, that was a lesson learned that, you know what, I should have made that decision and just said yes, because it would have saved a lot of grief afterward. Well, then, so, hold on, this, this is really good because the structure of your organization almost determines how you move forward. You know, right. you all were doing a syndication, so that did give you the authority to be able to make that decision and move forward, right? Versus if you were in a joint venture, you would have consult had to consult everybody to ensure right. a vote. So so the only thing is with the syndication, keep in mind most times you do have other people in the GP as well. So even though the LP is passive, the GP is active and usually has decision-making authority. Right. Uh, so I decided to consult all of the other people in the GP. And sometimes, right. you know, with, with the GP, you can get enough members in there, you know, with any situation in life. The, the more cooks that you have in the kitchen, the tougher it is, right? So if you have five cooks in the kitchen, but it's only designed for three cooks, uh, then it's going to be tough for you to get around and to, to do what you need to. Yeah, and I think uh, Kim Lisa Taylor said that to have no more than three to five people in the uh, on the GP side. So yep. um, anything more would be be kind of disastrous. But I get you, what you're saying. If it's only meant for three cooks, don't have five. Right, you- 100%. So, so then initially... I was thinking to myself, okay, well, what are we going to do? So we tried pushing our lender and we said, listen, is there any way you can speed up whatever you have left in your process that we can actually close by the 28th? The seller's changed his mind. He doesn't want to offer an extension. He's going to hold us in default if we don't close by this date. Uh, so at that point, we had the lender's attention and they were doing whatever they could to pull strings on their end. But unfortunately, they said, you know what? It, it, it would really take a miracle for us to close by that date. Wow. And, and I said, well, what are the odds of making a miracle happen? And and unfortunately, the answer was not too good. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't pull that rabbit out your head, but you not you not, not quite. So okay. fast forward a little bit later in the week. Now it's January twenty seventh, one day before we're required to close in the on the contract. Okay. So I'm doing whatever I can at that point, and I said, okay, let me pull out all the last ditch efforts. I guess if we have any last ditch efforts. Now's as good a time as any to start using them. <laughs> so the, the seller, uh, his office is not that far from where I live in Charlotte. Okay. And I decided to make the decision to go to his office and see if I could see him in person, negotiate, beg, plead, whatever it took. Uh, you, know, you know, never be too proud to beg. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's it. Especially when there's $250,000. No? Yeah. Right. Uh, so... I go to the office, see the receptionist, and I, I, I exit the seller, and, and she said, unfortunately, he's not here. He's out in appointments. I said, okay, well, that didn't work out quite as planned. Okay, made the effort, but the effort fell short. So, you know, at this point, we're thinking, okay, we're probably less than about 24 hours from, you know, where, where we're going to be held in default. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what other options do we have? So we decided to start reaching out. And this is a, a rather unconventional approach, especially on the commercial and multifamily side. Okay. We decided to start reaching out to some hard money lenders we knew and said, what are the odds that we could potentially get a short-term hard money loan and then have our loan application with our lender 
converted from an acquisition application to a refinance. And I, I, you know, I had to start getting creative because I said, okay, well, we have to figure oh. something out. Yeah, that's, and, uh, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of points. Right. But, but at this point, it would have cost us more to lose, uh, one, to lose a quarter of a million dollars that was tied up in the deal, and two, to have to return the equity that we'd already raised from all the investors. Gotcha. Uh, let me reassure you, it does not give investors confidence when you raise money from them, and then you have to return their equity because you couldn't close on the transaction. So, it, okay, I got you. I got you. <laughs> that's, so that, that's considered a bad thing. But, I, but the thing was, oh, oh, okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. So, so then at that point, we did find one hard money lender that we knew had a lot of capital available yeah. and that we have a good relationship with. And, and I was impressed that on such short notice, having not seen the deal before and strictly on reputation, yeah. he was willing to give us $5 million. And I said, that was great. I said, that was truthfully very generous of him. Unfortunately, we needed six and a half, so five five million wasn't going to quite get it done. <laughs> uh, but I said, on such short notice, it was still good. Okay, it was yeah. a win. I'll, I'll take that as a win. So th then I made one more last ditch effort. You know, probably around five o'clock that night, I emailed the seller directly, and I you know I copied the broker just to keep him in the loop. Uh, you know, keep in mind for everybody new, if you're dealing with the broker, the correspondence really should go through them and not between the the parties. Exactly. So. <clears throat> So I send an email and I, I, I figured at this point, let me do whatever I can to get his attention. And I put, you know, dear Mr. Seller, you know, as you know, we're very interested in closing this transaction. It, it seems doubtful that we'll be able to close it by tomorrow though. You know, I, I don't think we'll need more than a week, possibly even less than that, but a week should give us more than enough time to get everything buttoned up with our financing and to get it to closing. Uh, so in, in lieu of this, we're willing to offer you a few different options. And we gave, you know, five different options. So we gave, you know, one would have been additional non-refundable deposit money on the purchase price. Okay. Another one was a one-time extension fee that was totally separate from the purchase price. It would just go to him. Uh, then we also offered uh, a few other options. We offered him an ownership stake in the GP, giving up part of okay. our equity. If he wanted to stick around, yeah. Right. Then we also offered him, you know, we knew his staff and his employees were very valuable to them. He was a local owner and we knew that taking care of them and doing the right thing was very important to him. So we also offered him the chance to provide a, a compensation package to his staff. So mm. that way that was something important to him. So we figured, okay, we'll throw that out there. Okay. So I, I was expecting or hoping, hoping is probably the better word that he would respond and, and maybe give us one or two of those options that he liked best. Uh, he responded and, and more or less wanted a piece of all five. <laughs> and I'm saying, boy, this is going to be, I, I said, I'm glad that I got a response, but I said, this is not the response I wanted. <laughs> you, he, okay, so he wanted a piece of all five of those options. Yeah. Instead of just taking one, he was like, oh, okay, yeah. I this and I want, you know, so did that turn out to be more than the $50,000 that? Uh... It did. Okay. Uh, now, in retrospect, uh, it wasn't, it was a little more, but not that much. So it wound up being the $50,000 extension fee that he initially wanted. We also wound up putting an additional $50,000 down toward the purchase price. So even though that was laid out, that comes back at closing because it's technically applied to your purchase price. And then we also wound up giving part of our personal sh uh, share in the GP to him. 
So essentially, he's also a partner in the deal. Uh, so we wound up negotiating with those three things. Um, and, and at least we got them off the other two. But I said, okay, it wound up costing us you know, probably a lot more. So theoretically, on this deal, uh, the way we're projecting it, we purchased it for $7.4 million. And we're projecting a sale in a few years of $10 million to eighty. So you figure that's nearly a $3 million profit. So, you know, we didn't give him a substantial portion, but we still gave him, you know, I, th I think about eight points or so of the GP to satisfy him. So essentially where it'll cost this is when we go sell the property in a few years, and that'll be part of the profit that we would have had. It, it winds up going to him. But I said, you know what? It saved the transaction. It got it done. And it, it, it didn't tie up $250,000 in litigation for an extended period of time. So it, overall it was a win. Yeah, and 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 I think you probably have 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 gotten a partner for life almost. He right. may be somebody else that'll do the GP moving forward. I remember talking to a broker about a, a deal some uh, several years ago, and and you know he said, Jonathan, if you if you buy this deal from this individual, as long as you're in the Sun Belt, they'll be in any deal that you want. And I said, huh? <laughs> you know, you know, you're actually right. That that's that's another thing that could come of it. Uh, even though it wound up being a very tough negotiation, overall it was a fairly smooth process. Yeah. Aside from those two weeks up to up to the scheduled closing date, uh, yeah. You know, the real kicker is after we worked that out, you know, I had our attorney draft a an amendment, and here we are on the twenty eighth, and it's approaching the end of you know normal business hours, which for me is not really a big thing because I normally work you know way outside yeah. of those anyway. Right. But around six o'clock, I. I you know, we had the attorneys button everything up and I signed the extension amendment and sent it back. And the seller didn't send anything back that night. And I'm saying, boy, I wonder if he's rethinking it. So it made me really think that night as I was going to sleep, I wonder if he's not going to sign it and he's going to hold us in default. And, and I reached out to the broker and said, what do you think? I mean, do you think he's going to go back on it at this point and, and, and not sign it? And he said, I don't know. I don't really know. So thankfully, I was happy to see that Next morning around eight o'clock, he did send it. Okay. Uh, I guess maybe he just didn't check his email for nighttime. And I'm, I was glad to see it was just that and not him pulling back on it afterward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you guys can go ahead and get it closed. Well, you mentioned right. something earlier and I and I kind of begged off the, the, the response. You mentioned that it's not a good idea to send back the owner's money once they've, they've actually deployed it to you. Um, why is that? Is that just because of a lack of confidence or now they have to find a place to put that money and put it to use? What, what, what are some of the, the reasons why that's that's not a good idea? So, so the big one is lack, lack of confidence. The last thing you ever want your investors to do is lose confidence in you. It takes long enough to build it up. Once you rattle their confidence, the odds of them ever coming back to you are very slim. Gotcha. So go confidently and, and make, make solid footsteps. So, yeah, yeah. Most times in this business, you know, depending on, on the investor you're dealing with, you may have anywhere from six months to like four years to really win somebody over and get them to invest with you. So on this deal, we probably had about, you know, maybe 25 investors or so at that time. So we would have had to return all of their money and say, sorry, we didn't close on this transaction. Here's your money back. Um, so that's essentially a lot of relationships, a lot of effort, a lot of time that may not be there the next time you go to them and say, listen, I have a deal. Do you want to invest in it? Got it. Got it. Wow. 
So if somebody is interested in getting started with underwriting, I mean, I know that there have been a lot of um, different tools that are out there, free tools now, um, where in the past, you know, people had to pay for them. Um, you know, how would you recommend someone get started with potentially, you know, doing some underwriting or, uh, yeah, I'll just say underwriting and put a period there for right now. So, so there's a lot of different ways that one can go about it. I mean, there's so many different guru programs out there that somebody can take. Uh, there's more cost-effective ways if you wanted to go in bigger pockets, which is definitely a great resource. Another one that you touched on is the, the GOB Apartment Investor Network, which is a, a lesser known resource, but I think it's something that's got a lot of value to it and something that a lot of newer investors can definitely glean some wisdom from. Yep. And another way just to throw a cheap plug in there is every Saturday at 4 p.m. on Zoom, uh, I do a free underwriting session. So if anybody wants to attend, they're welcome to. And we normally have that as a group-like interactive setting. Uh, so that's you know somebody, a way somebody can go check it out and look at it in real time and not have to pay anything. So what's your purpose for holding that? I mean, it's a, it is a four-hour block of time, uh, which, first of all, is very generous. Um, and you do walk through things step by step, but you know what's what's your what's your takeaway from from so, giving, giving things away? So there's a few different things that come from it. So initially, when I first started, it really just happened organically. So around the beginning of 2020, we had taken on, uh, for lack of a better term, what we'll call unpaid interns, and we had people who wanted to learn about commercial real estate. So what we told them is, I would personally spend time with them and teach them about the broker relations and underwriting and acquisition side of the business. And in exchange, they would look for deals in different areas than we were currently looking in. So it was a way to increase the amount of deals that we were able to look at. And we were able to just kind of expand our presence. So it gave us the ability to look at more things than I would personally have the time to do if I was looking at everything on my own. And what we would do is most of them happen to be based in Charlotte, which is where I am. So we would meet every Saturday in person and get together and just underwrite an actual deal. And then the pandemic happened and things changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we started doing them on Zoom and started meeting virtually. And I thought to myself and said, well, you know, I'm doing them anyway. I said, what's the difference if I'm doing it for four people or a hundred people? Right. I said, it's not any extra work. And I said, it's the same, the same thing because we're all here on Zoom anyway. Yep. So why not open it up to the people? So, so what it's manifested into, I mean, little by little, it's grown, you know, it started where there was, you know, five people coming each week. Uh, and now there's probably, you know, 25 to 35 most weeks, depending on, yeah. on the day. Yeah. And, and for me, when I get out of it, one, I enjoy it. And some people may find that strange, but I actually enjoy no, commercial real estate. You could tell you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. To me, it's something that, that I've always been, you know, ever since I started working in it, I, I always took a liking to it. And I think it's something that has, you know, it's, it's like a game of human chess to it to an extent. So I like that. And I like trying to say, okay, well, this is what the seller did. What do I do next? Right. So I, I like the gamesmanship for lack of a better term. And then also, you know, I've always liked giving back and, and to an extent that's a way of giving back. And then also something good that comes here for me is two things. One is that it gives me something to promote when I go on podcasts and appearances like this. Uh, it wasn't really what I intended to become known for, but for better or worse, I've become known for my underwriting. So I said, okay, I guess I'll, I'll accept it and have to wear it with pride. Gotcha. And, and then the second thing is that occasionally 
some people who attend the sessions, if, if they have a deal that they don't know what to do with, but they think it works, they'll usually come to me and see if, if I can help them. So I said, okay, that could be an unexpected benefit that I wasn't really intending, but I'm certainly open to it. If it makes sense, you know, we can work together and find a way to get it closed. Absolutely. So what is it that you want to be known for? You know, initially I would have liked to have been the, the front man for the business. I think I would have liked the investor relations side just to, to satisfy my ego. But I also realized that's not what my strength is. So you, you have to know what you're good at in life. Uh, okay. And, and it's finding balance. So I can sell through relationship-based selling and I can, I can build relationships and, and convince people to buy things. Uh, I will probably never be good at doing the hard sell. That, that's just not me. And it's not how I operate. And, and you know, I, I think really, if you're going to have a good investor relations person, they probably should be good at doing the hard sell. And they should also like sharing content regularly on social media. Uh, I really don't like sharing content. I, I, I share certain things, but I like to keep a lot of things close to the vest. So I realized, you know what? I'm probably not the, the ideal person for investor relations. Gotcha. So, so you, you have to know what you're good at and what you're not and use your strengths and find somebody else to fill those holes. Last question for you, and uh, I'm hoping if there's anything else that comes to mind, but I, you, you do underwriting, um, you're now doing asset management, where you, for anybody else listening who's brand new, this is where after the deal is closed, <clears throat> you need to make sure that the property manager is doing well, and that the asset or the apartment building is performing, you know, financially, like you said, you said, you know, you would give your, your uh, investors a certain amount of return. The yep. asset management piece is the one where you know you guarantee that. So um, why why continue on after underwriting and acquisitions to asset management? You know, is that yeah. so? There's probably a few reasons for that. I think eventually, as our company grows, we would wind up outsourcing one at least one of those roles. Uh, for now, they're like many small businesses. You often tasked with wearing many hats, and. You know, even with the position that I worked in for 14 years in New York, I was always used to wearing many hats. I never had, you know, just one. <laughs> yeah. So similar as, I, as I'm running my own business, uh, I carry on in that same fashion. And, and eventually, as we grow, I, I look forward to relinquishing at least one of those roles. But, you know, I think it's out of necessity. Somebody has to do it. And I'm always glad to step up and, and be the one. Gotcha. Okay. I, 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 I never shy away from responsibility and I would ad advocate for anybody on here, even though you do want to have more effective systems that don't rely solely on you. Sometimes that may not, may not always be possible when you're starting up. So you have to make, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Absolutely. Figure it out and uh, do it all until you're right. able to hand it off to someone else. I yep. think that's also what uh, Michael Gerber would say with the E-Myth Revisited. Um, yep. He said, you know, you draw an organization chart, you're the one in every, every box until you develop a plan and you found somebody who can then uh, execute that plan uh, in that particular position for you. So that, that makes wise, wise sense to me. So is there anything else that you want to share with anybody else here? And uh, how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. So what I would say is just, you know, parting, for anybody starting out, there's really four quick things I'll recommend. And, and, and these are all things that are cliche that you probably hear from a lot of people, but I'll reinforce them. And I'll, I'll do that because I made all these mistakes myself because I, I like learning the hard way. Mm -hmm. uh, but one is picking a target location. Mm -hmm. uh, doing that just gives you an advantage because you start to develop 
familiarity and expertise with the market and you also yeah. start building relationships. Pause one second. So a target location or four or five, because a one. lot of times one, one. Okay. Cause a lot yeah. of times newbies are, you know, four or five different locations, three different locations. They're looking yep. at you're saying just focus in on one. Why, right. Why focus in on one. So, so here's the reason. So initially when I first started in multifamily in 2017 and I was doing it very part-time, uh, my partners and I decided to look anywhere east of the Mississippi River, which covers a, a pretty large amount of geography. So one month I was in Ohio, one month I was in Indiana, twice I was in Kentucky. One of my partners was in Tennessee. So we were looking at deals all over the place. But you're at two main disadvantages with that. One is that you're always spending time familiarizing yourself with the market. Mm -hmm. And two is you're always the low man on the totem pole because you're starting to build new broker relationships, new vendor relationships, new property manager relationships. So nobody knows who you are. You're, you're always the new guy. And the way you get deals in this business is through relationships. Yep. You know, the, the last two deals that we've gotten were literally worked out over a lunch meeting. Wow. And, and uh, I hope to have many more deals worked out that way in the future. But the thing is, that's because we had relationships. I couldn't just go to somebody that I'm meeting for the first time and do that. You know, they, they have to know you a little bit. They have to be confident in your ability to perform. So that takes time. So if you're spreading yourself, even at the four or five markets, there's a lot more relationships. There's a lot more market knowledge you need. And you can only spread yourself so thin. Mm. And, and the reality is many people who enter this business are doing so with either a full-time job or another business because syndication offers a lot of money, but none of that money's in the beginning. <laughs> so if you're expecting to jump into it and quit your job and go full-time, I would tell somebody that they, they better be independently wealthy where they'll be able to sustain their lifestyle while they do that. Right. So most of us have jobs or, right. or other businesses. And because of that, you'll only be able to keep up with so many relationships. So pick one market starting out. Then after you close a deal or two, then you can broaden your horizons and expand that scope. Uh, it took us a year to kind of figure out, okay, let's, let's hone it in and pick one market. And initially, you know, we were looking all over the East Coast and we realized that was a big mistake and a big waste of time. And uh, after about a year, we smartened up and said, okay, let's pick one. Then, then the second thing I would tell you is to find a partner to build your business with. Most indication groups have two to four partners in them. And there's a reason for that. Uh, one, because being it's not something most people are doing full-time right from the beginning, it just allows you to have more leverage by using other people's time. Right. And secondly, you're also using other people's skill set. Right. So at, at the simplest level, what there is in this business is finding deals and finding money. So you need to be good at one of those two things. And most people are good at at least one. You need to figure out which one you're really good at and which one you enjoy. And then you need to find a person or people to fill the other role. So for me, I, I like the acquisition side better. Part of it is because I kind of just jumped into it and started with that. But I also like the, the relationship building aspect. So to me, I like seeing the same people over and over again. The brokers that I deal with, they take out you know, for lunch or drinks or whatnot every two to three months. And, and I also work on touring properties as often as I can just to get in front of them. So it's seeing the same people building relationships and just going forward from there. So oh, no, capitalize analyze 200 or so properties. So I did that before finding the first one, somewhere between 150 and 200. It took okay. me a little over two years from the time I started in 2017 to when we got our first deal and closed it. 
now I've probably looked at somewhere around like 400 since I've been in there, but, but the good news is after you close the first deal, uh, you'll, you'll start seeing more opportunities open up. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first one is definitely the, the longest coming. The law, the law of the first deal, as Michael Blanc would say. You get I, I was thinking deal. the same thing. You hit the nail on the head. <laughs> you get the first yep. deal and everybody else kind of picks up the phone and gives you a call. Right. Then, then the third thing I'm going to tell you is to find investors. And this may sound like a common sense thing, but you'd be surprised how many people don't have any investors. That's right. And and, and the reality is they think they're going to go out there and find a, a multi-million dollar deal and then just find somebody who's going to come in and fund it for them. That sounds great in a storybook, but that's not reality. Uh, you, know, you know, the reality is if you're doing this with a single family home, let's say you find a $100,000 home and you, you go out there and you get an investor to, you know, essentially assign the contract to the next day. Great, you can do that for two reasons. One, uh, it's perfectly legal. And two, you know, it's a lot easier to find somebody with $100,000 cash than it is with 5 million bucks. Gotcha. So you have to be cognizant of that. And a lot of people seem to forget that. So being that these deals are so much larger, you typically need more than one investor to fund them unless you happen to find an absolute whale of a person with a boatload of cash sitting, sitting around that wants to invest with you. But you'll probably need a lot of different people. And mm. if you're just finding the deal and not working on the money side, what's going to happen is you're going to eventually wind up landing a deal, but you won't have any money to fund it. And I can say, because we've been there for that too. Uh, that's another mistake you learned. Yep. I, and, and just to throw out my hat, uh, I had a couple of situations uh, and I went to the um, to the finance individual, and the first question was, "Okay, now where's the money coming from?" Yeah, I said, "Well, I got a list," and it's like, "But you know, how warm is the list?" So right. you know, I've kind of reversed that and started picking up the phone and giving people a call directly, making sure that we have you know 15 minute zooms one on one to reignite the conversation or to you know delve deep and asking, if you will, that hard question as you mentioned before. It's not necessarily hard selling, but, you know, hey, we do not have a deal as yet. There's nothing that's out there. But if we were, how much money do you think you might be able to invest in a deal? Right. That's and, and, you know, that, that's always important. And there's another reason that's also important, because in this business, what a lot of people don't think of is we're not selling real estate. We're selling securities. So there's a much different set of rules and regulations that apply. And unfortunately, a set of rules and regulations that often get overlooked. <laughs> uh, but you don't want to overlook them because they can get very expensive to overlook. Yeah. So for anybody listening, if you're starting out in syndication, keep in mind what you're really in is the money management business. We're selling securities, which means that you're selling something to an investor that they have no control over. So they're going to be strictly passive. They have no right to do anything. So you're really responsible for their money. And because of that, there's different rules that are in place. You have to have a pre-existing substantive relationship for most syndications. There are certain types that don't require it. But, mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So just to make sure you're compliant, you want to start building those investor relationships right away. Then the last thing I would tell anybody is finding sponsors or key principals. So a sponsor is in essence really just somebody who signs on the loan for you. And while that's important in and of itself, that's not the most important thing, but the real important part is that if you build a good relationship with them, make sure you ask them, do not do this without asking them. But if you build a good reputation with a, a good uh, relationship with them, you can ask them to use 
their name and their track record when you speak to people. And just think of it this way. If you speak to a broker and you say, hey, Mr. Broker, you know, I'm just starting out, you know, looking for my first deal. What can you send me? Or if you say, hey, Mr. Broker, I'm, I'm working with Joe Smith. Joe's got 2,500 units. I'm his local boots on the ground in this market. And we're looking for deals like this. Which one do you think is going to get you a better response? Right. The one, the one that uh, where you have referenceability. And right. Some people may actually be wondering, well, how do I find those kind of people? I mean, I know we're in the, still in the age of COVID, but when I've gone to conferences, I've had um, at least one or two out of the blue say, hey, do you need to use my name yep. you know, as a KP? And it shocked me. But if, again, you're in, the, if you're out there developing relationships or whatever, uh, people have a tendency to talk and, you know, people will, will know who you are before you know who they are and uh, be right. willing to potentially work with you. So, yep. um, yeah. So, so that's how you can find them. And then I would go on all the Zooms that you are in, whatever the market is that you've chosen, right? Be on them consistently, you know, offer value if you can um and uh, ask ask questions and you may you may wind up finding someone who could be potentially a kp for you two other ways i would mention is one that i see utilized pretty well is facebook groups mm -hmm. and i actually know a couple of kps that i've seen going there and post occasionally they'll say i'm a kp who who, who needs sponsorship so you couldn't get any more direct than that so that's an opportunity to me if i was just starting out Yep. and I need AKP, then I'm jumping on that post and I'm going to reach out to that person. There you go. Uh, that another way I would say is also, you know, what we referenced earlier is the GOB Apartment Investor Network. That's another Absolutely. great spot. Absolutely. For meeting KPs. Absolutely. GOB Network definitely is one of those places. Um, and if you happen to go, um, the Michael, I think Michael Blanc's Slack group, I know that there is uh, the DMM. I'm not sure how they structure that right now, but there, there may be some additional people in, in that as well. But um, uh, sometimes there is a, a financial component that some people are unable to meet that hurdle. And so definitely mm -hmm. the GOB network could potentially be a, a great alternative for you in that. Yeah. I agree. 100%. Um, so those are the four things. Number one, pick one market. Yep. Number two, to um, uh, find, find, find partners, find new partners who you're going to be with. Number three, get your KP. And number four, who's the, what was the number four? Find investors. Find investors. Gotcha. Partners and investors. Okay. I was conflating those two things, two separate yep. things. That's right. Well, that's excellent, man. How can people get in contact with you? Yep. I'll give you two ways. So uh, what I would say is for anybody interested in attending the underwriting session, you should reach out and tell me that you heard me on Jonathan's podcast. And you can reach out by text 347-306-3278 or by email charles at threeoaksmanagement.com. That's the number three, O-A-K-S-M-G-M-T.com. Excellent. Well, listen, Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, walk us through this and give us some, some pearls, some, some nuggets of wisdom. And I'm pretty sure that we can, if there's anything that we can do to assist you, please feel free to reach out to us. Jonathan, thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely.